Christianity allows men to oppress women, or at least that's what we've heard. But actually, it's Christianity that channels men's natural instincts to be used for good and protective purposes rather than destructive purposes. And it's actually the secular atheistic perspective that pushes male oppression and female inferiority. And to prove that and explain it today is Professor Nancy Piercy. She is the author of several books, including Total Truth, Love Thy Body, which I reference all the time, and her latest book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. This is part two of our two-part conversation about the body and gender and gender roles and specifically today on the uh, on masculinity and the importance of biblical masculinity. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to goodranchers.com. Use code Allie at checkout. That's goodranchers.com code Allie. You purport that biblical masculinity is is really, I mean, as you just said, is really like the distinction. It's really the game changer. You wrote for the Federalist that rejecting biblical masculinity turns men from protectors to predators. So tell us a little bit more about that. Well, the title was chosen by the editors. <laughs> from protector to predator, that was their language. Um, but again, you know, one of the things that I bring to the table is I I, I show you from even non-Christian sources. So this was a, a fascinating uh, study. It was done by a non-Christian historian. And he said, um, your view of God is determines your view of masculinity um, in, in a culture. For example, he, he starts with polytheism. So think of the ancient Greek cultures with the gods on Mount Olympus. Or think of the Norse gods. He said in a polytheistic culture, these are his words, the gods fought, they winched, they parroted their power, and they exalted the military values, you know, to be a man is to be a warrior. Well, there's some truth to that. Every culture has parts of God's truth, because um, they're, they're made in God's image. Um, but it's incomplete. So then he goes on, this is this non-Christian historian goes on and says, well, what about monotheistic cultures? Well, there's some forms of monotheism where God is so exalted and so transcendent that he has no, rela no relationship with humans. And he gives the example of Islam. In Islam, God does not have his, uh, I, I read a book on the subject, and so I'll give you the exact words. Allah does not condescend to have a relationship with mere mortals. You know, the Judeo-Christian idea of a personal relationship with God is repugnant to Islam. So in Islam, a man is a person exerting power and authority over. Then the historian says, what about Judaism? It's monotheistic as well, but it adds the dimension that God is in relationship with his people. He has a covenant relationship with his people. So in Judaism, to be a man is to be a loving father. And then the same secular historian says, then Jesus came and complexified the whole question. <laughs> this is so fascinating. He says, Jesus introduced a new concept, servant leadership. He said, there's no other religion where the God practices servant leadership. Now, I came not to be served, but to serve, Jesus says. And this historian says, all of a sudden, 
virtues like love and gentleness and compassion became masculine virtues. In fact, the virtues we normally uh, ascribe to women, he said, are now masculine virtues. So it is Christianity that allows men to be full humans, you know, both sides, both, both tender and tough, right? both courageous and caring. Men made in God's image are able to be whole persons. And it's fascinating when you read even non-Christians acknowledging that Christianity gives this rich, full understanding of masculinity that you don't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And looking back throughout history, this idea of female inferiority, even though we read that it's really Christianity who authored that idea, who that's really oppressed women, it was Paul, the Apostle Paul, who is this great misogynist and really, you know, all these secular philosophies have been trying to liberate women. But if you go all the way back to the ancient scholars, if you look at some of the things that Socrates said, that Aristotle said about women, I mean, they believed there was an innate inferiority to women. And actually, Paul writing something in Ephesians 5, like, wives submit to your husbands, but also husbands. You better be ready to lay down your life for your wife. And also writing in 1 Corinthians that, yes, the wife's body doesn't belong to her. It belongs to her husband. But husband, your body also belongs to your wife. There was a radical equality of dignity, equality of worth, and a mutual submission that Christianity brought to the table that would have really rocked the boat and revolutionized what the ancient world, what the secular world thought about, you know, the equality of women when it came to their value. And really, like, we see that throughout history, even Darwin. Like, Darwin really believed in the inferiority of women. So the true history of the church, true the true church, not just nominal Christians oppressing people in the name of Christianity, but the true church, true followers of Christ have been trying to champion the dignity of both men and women uh, for a very long time, really since our inception. Yeah, well, you have two great points. Um, one is we appreciate Christianity better when we put it in its historical context yes, because totally. the Greco-Roman world had a very low view of women. You know, wives were for having legal heirs, and that's about it. It was totally accepted for men to have sex with just about any anyone else, you know, with, with courtesans and mistresses and prostitutes and and other men, by the way, homosexuality was also widely accepted. And slaves, the most frequent form of adultery was with a man's slaves, Even male and female, adult and children. Exactly. Yeah, there's, there's no sense that, that sex with children was a problem. So yes, when Christianity showed up in the ancient world, it was dramatically revolutionary. And one of the most important parts was what you just said. There was an equality between men and women that was just unheard of in the ancient world. Um, and it took several centuries. It took several centuries. We have a quote from uh, John of Chrysostom, who's writing to uh, Christian husbands in the fourth century, still telling them, no, you cannot have sex with your slaves. Yeah. You know, this was not an easy thing for men to accept. It was so yeah. ingrained that, well, you know, that sexual entitlement was very ingrained. And so it was very new when Christianity said no. It, it, it's, it's, ethic was not new for women because women were expected to be fa sexually faithful, but it was dramatically new for men to say, no, you have to have the same sexual ethic that women have. That was new. And 
you also raised Darwinism to jump several centuries yes, ahead. Yes. <laughs> Darwinism. Um, in my book, uh, The Toxic War on Masculinity, I trace uh, several stages in the development of a more toxic understanding of masculinity. You know, I just, I really wanted to get to the bottom of it and say, you don't understand a social trend unless you see where it came from and how it developed. And so Darwinism was one important stage because what you've already mentioned is Darwin himself argued that women were inferior. They were intellectually inferior. And by the way, he said, oh, yes, they are more sensitive and intuitive, but those are traits of the lower species. Hmm. So even women's strengths were seen as signs of her inferiority. And Thomas Huxley, who was called Darwin's bulldog because he promoted Darwinism so fiercely, said that because women's inferiority was a product of natural selection, it cannot be fixed even by educational selection. In other words, you can't educate women out of their inferiority. But perhaps the person who um, uh, was most expressive was Herbert Spencer. He's the one who popularized Darwinism here in America. And he wrote explicitly on uh, the relationship between the sexes. He said the men who came out on top in the struggle for survival would be the men who were rough, ruthless, savage, barbarian, brutal, and even predatory. Um, and so he argued that this is the true nature of you know, the, the masculine identity, is the beast within. Uh, the writers at the time used to talk about there's a thin veneer of civilization but underneath, men really are savage barbarians. This is when the Tarzan books became very popular, by the right. way, <laughs> because the idea was, that, hey, he's been he's been raised by the apes, so he still has that inner wildness. And at the end of the book, Tarzan says to Jane, "I'm still a wild beast at heart." Mm. So instead of urging men to live up to the image of God in them, our culture began to urge men to live down. To the beast within that that was their that was their true nature they were products of evolution of um, genes and environment and the true self were the impulses of power and dominance well that was a huge part of the development of a very i would say toxic secular script for masculinity if you want to know where it's coming from that would be a very important turning point Okay, let me tell y'all about Adele Natural Cosmetics. I talk about them all the time because I love them and I love their products. I think that they've made a really big difference in my skin. All of their products are completely holistic. They're natural. They started this company several years ago because of some health issues that the owner, Arlene, was having. And she realized, wow, I really need to start caring more about what not just I'm putting in my body, but also what I'm putting on my body to make sure it's totally toxin-free. So all their stuff is handcrafted, made in the U.S. They put a lot of care in everything. And I use their essential cleanser every day. I also love their Blue Lagoon line. I use this all the time. And it really has made my skin, I think, brighter and softer than it was before. I also love that they're totally unapologetic about their faith, about their pro-life stance. They just own this. 
and they're such an encouragement to me. They're always sending me kind words to support me and lift me up. And so they're just a great supporter of the show. And I really encourage you to support them too, not just because of what they stand for, but because their products are really amazing. Go to AdeleNaturalCosmetics.com. Use code Allie at checkout for 25% off your first order. AdeleNaturalCosmetics.com, code Allie. For 25% off your first order, AdeleNaturalCosmetics.com, code Allie. Yeah, you know what is interesting? I see a lot in uh, from secular progressives looking to the animal kingdom to justify certain kinds of human behavior. Well, you know, other species don't practice monogamy. They don't practice sexual faithfulness. I even saw a National Geographic video on Instagram the other day arguing that there's a ton of homosexuality in the animal kingdom and that it's very normal. It's interesting how now we are looking Okay, so we've evolved, according to Darwin, to this place. Now, instead of walking forward, you know, that typical picture of us basically evolving from monkeys and then barbarians and then who we are today. Now we've turned around and we're like, oh, how can we look to apes to inform and validate, you know, what we want to do, our carnal desires, as if we should be looking to the chaos of the animal kingdom to you know, dictate how we lead our lives and form society today. It's like, you know, oh. Romans 1, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Oh, isn't it? That's a, good, oh, that's a very good connection. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And yeah, so we don't don't just treat Darwinism historically. You know, he, he was writing in the late 19th century. But today, social Darwinism, as it's some, social Darwinism means applying Darwinism to society. And that's still very big today. It goes under the label of evolutionary psychology. And they're doing exactly what you just said. Evolutionary psychologists um, basically say we take our cues from the animal world. So Time magazine had a cover story on uh, saying that monogamy is not natural since, you know, monogamy is not that common in the animal world. Therefore, monogamy is just not natural. Uh, I think the the title was Infidelity. It may be in our genes. And there was a, another uh, psychologist, Steven Pinker, who is at Harvard, wrote a book where he said, um, if the goal is to get your genes into the next generation, then men should have, his, should have sex with as many women as possible um, to ensure that his genes get spread far and wide. So evolution has selected for promiscuity, at least for men, <laughs> by the way, which, is, which doesn't even make sense scientifically, because human children take such a long period of development right. that if the if the father disappears, you know, for his next sexual conquest and doesn't stick around to raise the child, he probably won't survive. So evolution should select for uh, faithful husbands and fathers. But perhaps the most extreme example was um, Robert Wright wrote a book called The Moral Animal, which was a bestseller, in which he said, because of evolution, men are flesh-obsessed pigs, oppressive, sex-oppressed, sex-obsessed pigs. Mm. Teaching a man to have a good marriage is like teaching Vikings, you know, handing them a booklet on how not to pillage. Like, what? (laughs) This is the message of evolution, that men are flesh-obsessed pigs who are like Vikings who just want to pillage? Like, if that were true... There would be no marriage. For example, why would women marry a man like that? And, you know, how could they stand to live with him? By the way, Herbert Spencer answered that question, too. He said, if evolution has selected for these brutal, savage, predatory men, 
how do women get along with them? Right. And he answered, they have, to, they have to develop the ability to please. And it would also help if they learn to hide their resentment at such ill treatment. So apparently that's the message of evolution, is that men are basically brutal beasts under the surface, under the thin veneer of civilization, and that women's job is to placate and please them. Wow. Isn't that so interesting? Yeah. And so we need to be confident in bringing out a Christian view of masculinity in the public square, because a Christian view gives men and women far more dignity and value than any secular worldview does. Yes. I don't know if you have talked to Louise Perry. Yes. And she, I talked to her too. And, you know, she's a feminist who is not an evangelical, but she argues that the Christian sexual ethic is better for women and children than really what secular feminism has been able to come up with. And that's the thing, you know, that's the thing with progressivism is that they're constantly trying to tear down these boundaries, these walls, these norms, without any thought to what a better alternative edifice could be. It's only about tearing down norms and hoping that that leads to liberation. When all these structures were actually put in place, like the family, like marriage, like certain gender roles and differentiations for our good. Yeah, um, I thought it was very interesting that Louise Perry became more conservative. Remember, her her roots are very liberal, very leftist. She wrote for she wrote for the New Statesman, which is considered a, a very leftist publication. And how did she become more conservative? Because she began working at a rape shelter. Hmm. She began seeing that realistically, physically, men have more power, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. You don't want to, a woman should not end up in a tight spot. Both of you have drunk. He's going to be, he's stronger than you. Most men, here's how one person put it. Most men could kill most women with their bare hands if they really wanted to. And that's not the reverse. So Louise Perry became more conservative because she realized a lot of those rules, like chivalry, for example, are in place to protect women. Right. And. But we are not acknowledging that men, if if we don't acknowledge that men have greater physical strength, then we won't put the moral restraints up to keep them in line. And I think that's, for me, that's a very realistic approach to why the Christian ethic is so much better for society. I have to tell you, Allie, I even became more conservative when I wrote my two chapters on domestic abuse. Um, I, I have a background, a history of being much more feminist in my younger years, and um, which I write about in the book. But I became more conservative writing the two chapters on domestic violence because I saw much more clearly that if we do not teach men to restrain their greater strength, then they can do more damage, which is what you said earlier in the program. Men have more strength, and therefore they can do more damage. It's not that they're more evil, you know, than women. It's just that they can do more damage because of their greatest strength. And there's a very realistic reason why we have special rules for how men treat women and why the, the Bible is so real, you know, it's real world. <laughs> you know, people think of the Bible sometimes as sort of airy-fairy spiritual stuff. No, this is very real world. 
and you know, hang, hang around domestic violence shelters or like Louise Perry did, rape shelters, and you will start to change your understanding of male-female relationships and the incredible importance it is to address especially men because they have uh, more physical strength. Okay, let me tell y'all about this cleaning company that I'm talking about all the time that you see me posting about on Instagram, and that is Naturally It's Clean. Naturally It's Clean makes incredible cleaning products that are free of a lot of these toxic chemicals and fragrances that you see in other cleaning products, but are still really effective. We're talking like hospital grade effectiveness without a lot of the fake stuff. It's a lot safer for your family without some of those ingredients. They use plant enzymes in their cleaning products to make sure they're safer and more effective. Uh, Bob Villa, Bob Villa says that Naturally It's Clean has the most eco-friendly carpet stain remover on the market today. And I didn't know that it was so eco-friendly, but the reason I like it is because it actually works. Moms out there, you know, you're getting stains on your carpet on a daily basis. And really, this is like one of the only ways that I know how to get out these stains is using my Naturally It's Clean spray. It's super easy. It works really well. I've gotten out paint. I've gotten out makeup. I've gotten out fruit smashed in the carpet bit. Coffee, it really works. I love their products as well as the multi-surface cleaner. That's another one of my favorites. Go to naturallyitscleaned.com slash Allie. You can get 15% off for a limited time when you go to naturallyitscleaned.com slash Allie. Naturallyitscleaned.com slash Allie. And what Christianity offers that feminism doesn't, because feminism may also say we should we need to restrain those. We need to suppress those natural instincts of men. But Christianity says we need to channel them. That yeah. these that these are characteristics that God gave men. He made them to be physically stronger. That's a good thing. That is that's a wonderful thing. And that aggression that uh, comes with that, that ability to dominate, that's actually I mean, that's part of why we are safe in marriage. That's why I'm safer in marriage than living by my by myself or being a single mom, because my husband has the ability to kill a predator. <laughs> like, because my husband has the ability to physically defend us and do those things that it would be much more difficult for me to do. So it's about channeling, as you've said, those strengths into an aggression that is that fulfills its telos, that fulfills the purpose that God gave mm-hmm. it, that provision and protection. Yeah, and what I did in the book, I mean, people said, you know, people have asked me, what side are you on, you know, complementarian or egalitarian? I said, you know, I actually don't even argue that because this is a very fact-based, fact-based book. And what I do is I just look at the sociological data. So not the, the, the I think it's chapter three. <laughs> chapter three is just, surveying Christian couples and how they live out their understanding of headship and submission, you know, in in the real world, not just what they say, but how they actually live it out. And, you know, the most widely quoted, the most frequently quoted passages, passage is Ephesians 5, you know, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. All of these couples would quote Ephesians 5, not just the the wives, but the the part that that addresses the husbands, and so it was fascinating. I was actually I was actually taken aback. I was surprised. I, and in fact, to put it bluntly, I was blown away by how positive 
Christian men showed up in these studies. I would not have guessed it. To tell you the truth, I would not. I would not have guessed that Christian men would show up as being so loving and so respectful. Um, and and I, I took about I a dozen, I'm guessing, a, a dozen different studies by both psychologists and sociologists. Um, so that, that's quite a bit of data there. And the Christian men test out amazingly loving and responsible and protective of their wives and children. And you said, so they were asked, you know, well, what do you mean? What do you think headship means then? And, you know, not once did anyone say, well, it means I get my way. You know, it means I'm the boss. No, they all said, well, it means you have responsibility for the spiritual, physical, and emotional welfare of your family. It's mm-hmm. your job to make sure everyone in the family is thriving. It's your job, especially, to make sure your wife is thriving, that she's doing well, that she's growing spiritually, um, and that we get the and that we get the family to church on Sundays. <laughs> that was that was often uh, mentioned, um, and that you lead Bible studies and prayer in your home. I was astonished at how the the research showed. Uh, you can argue, you know academically about what headship means and so on. But I wanted to know how do they really live it out? You know, what do the social, uh, the the study show, what do the studies show when they actually talk to Christian men and women? And what was interesting too is that for the most part, if you have a really close relationship with your wife, you're not going to run into these really tough, you know, head-to-head conflicts. As one man put it who was interviewed, he said, well, if you, if you and your wife are both led, both led by the Holy Spirit, you know, and you're both praying regularly and, you know, you're both working to love and be sacrificial to one another, you're probably not going to run into very many uh, true, you know, conflicts, true conflicts that you cannot resolve without somebody pulling rank. In fact, one pastor said, if you have to pull rank, you know, in, in other words, if you have to say, hey, I'm the boss, so this is what happens. He said, you probably have something wrong with your marriage. You know, if you've gotten to that point, maybe there's something in your marriage that needs work. So this is one of the parts of the book that I found really fascinating, is that when you talk to Christian men and women on how they live out headship and submission, it's far different from what the outside world thinks. Okay, let me tell y'all about good Ranchers, you guys know how much I love Good Ranchers. We still have a lot of summer left, which means there are many opportunities for you to be grilling out with your family. And if you're really a patriot, you really love America, then you should be getting all of your meat from America too. Did you know that when you walk into the grocery store and you see the Made in the USA sticker on the meat, it doesn't necessarily mean that that is from an American ranch, it probably means that it was packaged, maybe processed in the United States, but the meat itself was actually imported from overseas. If you really want to support American farms and ranchers, if you want to make sure that your meat doesn't have all that mRNA junk in it, you should be getting all of your meat from Good Ranchers. They've got Kraft Beef, Better Than Organic Chicken, pre-marinated, non-pre-marinated. They got seafood. We love it all. It makes our life so much easier and healthier in the Stucky home. Go ahead and subscribe. When you subscribe, you lock in that price for two years, which is an amazing deal. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use code Allie at checkout for $30 off your order. GoodRanchers.com, code Allie. GoodRanchers.com, code Allie. 
so different than the misconception that so many have. Even I was surprised looking back at the Puritans. You know, the Puritans are often seen as these very just restrict, oppressive, restrictive uh, people. But when you look at what some of the Puritan scholars and pastors said about marriage, said about their wives, how they just dignified their wives and appreciated their wives and relied on their wives' strength and their wives' wisdom and making decisions and being discerning. Yes, of course, they believed as we do that the husband is the head of the wife. And at the end of the day, those decisions that have to be made are going to be made, protection, provision, all of that. Um, But they talked very sweetly of marriage and women and that equality of dignity. There's, I won't read it all, but there's an article in Table Talk magazine that talks about this. How did the Puritans um, understand marriage by Joel Becky and one of the Puritans that he uh, that he quotes, he writes about marriage, a curious knot that God made in paradise, a true love knot more sweet than spice. Just so many beautiful poetic declarations of marital love and women made by the Puritans and the appreciation of their wisdom. Um, I think people don't understand that. And even some, you know, some Christians today who claim to be these like you know, patriarchists or whatever, who seem to reinforce the idea that women are inferior and should just be totally quiet in all settings, don't seem to understand that the history of the Christian church is not that. It is upholding the dignity of women. When I when I uh, had my students read my manuscript in the classroom, I literally got students saying, at a Christian university, I literally got students saying, I have never heard anything positive about the Puritans yeah. until I read wow. your book. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, I found that what you just said, I found very um, wonderful quotes expressing a tremendous love and affection between husband and wife. And they did use the word equality. Um, they would say, One Puritan preacher, for example, said, okay, right, in human culture and customs, there are differences between men and women. He said, but spiritually, there are there, which is where it counts. There is no difference between men and women. And and he used the word equality when he wanted to express that, which is surprising. One of my uh, favorite um, historians actually was a feminist historian, and she expresses shock and surprise that uh, women were, were acknowledged, like you said, women's wisdom was acknowledged, and they had the right to, as she puts it, reprove they had the right to reprove their husbands. And then she gave a couple of quotes from the Puritans where they said, yes, women have the wisdom to reprove the head of the home. And and here's another fact that takes people back. Puritans passed the first law ever in human history that we know of against wife beating. 1641, the Massachusetts Bay Colony passed a law against wife beating. And it was quickly followed by a law against husband beating and a law against beating children and servants. But that doesn't sound like our understanding of the Puritans. They passed the first law against domestic violence. And we need to revise our understanding of the Puritans because they are um, our heritage in many ways. They were looking at men, by the way, the men that they were looking at were men who before the Industrial Revolution, right? So these were men who were working with their wives and children all day. And they had to be gentle and patient. You know, they were on the family farm, the family business, the family industry. And they're working with people they love and have a moral bond with. So the ethos, the expectation 
of masculinity back in the colonial era was very much focused on caretaking and responsibility for the whole, you know, not just look out for number one, you know, not just get ahead personally, like personal ambition, but it was always tied to how are you doing this for your family and your community? So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to start with the colonial era, which I, which is what I do in my book, partly so that we have a baseline to see how concepts of masculinity then you know, degraded from that point on. The colonial era was very much a Christian understanding of manhood. Even the concept of authority was different. Nowadays, we think authority means, hey, I'm in charge. You know, I get to do what I want. Back then, authority meant the person in charge of the common good. So I naturally look out for what's good for me. You look out for what's good for you. But who looks out for the common good, whether it's the marriage or the family, the church, the school, civil society? Authority was an office. And the person who held that office had the responsibility for the common good of the whole. In fact, the favorite term back then was that he was to be disinterested, meaning that he was not supposed to look out for his own interests. He was supposed to be the one who looked out for the interest of the whole. And uh, when my students read that, they say, well, if we had that notion of authority, (laughs) I think I'd be happy with that if we still could revive that today. Okay, parents, maybe this is the year that you have decided to uh, take your child's education away from the public school system or maybe even the private school that your child was in and to homeschool them. And you want to make sure that the curriculum that they're learning is uh, making them smarter for sure, making them think more critically, but also instilling them with the values that you hold dear, that you believe in, that should be what the education of our children is. And to make that really easy for you homeschooling parents, Freedom Project Academy offers an amazing curriculum. They've perfected online learning. They offer live on-demand homeschool courses for kindergarten through 12th grade. It was built on biblical values, classical curriculum. They're dedicated to mastery of subject matter and teaching kids not just what to think, but specifically how to think. Right now, you can save 10% on tuition when you enroll today at freedomforschool.com. That's freedomforschool.com. You'll save 10%. Go ahead, check it out. It can be so much easier to follow a program like this that you can really rely on to give your kids the education that you're looking for. Go to freedomforschool.com, freedomforschool.com. I love that. I love that authority is the one being in charge of the common good. I mean, who doesn't want to submit to that? I I mean, who as a woman wouldn't say, wow, it's a it's a privilege to be a wife, to uh, submit to the person who is in charge of the common good for myself and for my family. And so I do think when we see authority as that, we see masculinity as that. When we see the husband as a reflection of Christ as the head of the church, um, that does, it changes everything. It changes everything. And Christians have been in the business of, through the power of the gospel, changing everything, changing cultures, infusing culture with a good view of men and women, of children, of slaves, for a very long time. And we should be carrying that torch, but sometimes it takes people reminding us that that is the church's legacy, that that is the power of the gospel. Um, And that's what you help us do in this book. So is there anything else you want to say about this book and where people can find it and all that good stuff? 
Um, yeah, yes, uh, you did say it's children, so that reminded me of the children. Yeah, there is this part on children, too, because, you know, oddly, Christianity has become like the wallpaper of Western culture. We don't realize anymore how many of the things that are good about the West came from Christianity. And children is one example. In ancient Rome, children had no status. They were they were considered they were considered non persons. It was common to beat them. It was common to commit abortion and infanticide, and especially of baby girls. It was very rare for a Roman family to have more than one daughter. Any other any other daughters that were born, they would just put out exposure. My my students even don't even know the word anymore. It means exposure means they put the babies out into nature to be eaten by the wild beasts and so on. And sometimes they were rescued by sex brothels, by the way, and brought up as sex slaves. So uh, there's a whole book on this um, that you, you probably enjoy reading sometime on how Christianity is what gave us the notion of the child as a special. Yes. Owen Backey, you know, When Children Became People. Yes. 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 <laughs> it's a great book. Exactly. And when Jesus, so in that context, we understand better what Jesus was doing when he said, you know, let the children come to me because yes. he was speaking at a culture where children were high, very much devalued. And by the way, women were devalued as well, partly because they were attached to children. Yes. You know, they tended to have more emotional attachment. If you're attached to something that's seen as having little value, that means, you know, you have little value because you're spending so much of your time and energy raising children. And so the elevation of children also led to the elevation of women. Anyway, um, yeah, we, we, we've, uh, I talk about that in Lovely Body as well. Yes. But since you mentioned children, I just had to say. That's such yes, a good point. It's, we have forgotten that so much of our Christian heritage is part of the West. You know, even Richard Dawkins, just throwing this out. Even Richard Dawkins, who right, was one of the new atheists and who has been incredibly hostile to Christianity, is finally starting to say, actually, I kind of like Christian civilization. He's beginning to realize how unique it is. As we lose it, he's beginning to realize how unique Christian civilization is. Now, he, does, you know, he, doesn't, want to know, he doesn't want the religion that caused it, that gave birth to that civilization, but he is beginning to realize Christian civilization is worth saving. It is better for people. It has led to freedom and dignity in a way that other religions have not. Um, and you asked where to get the book. Well, where to get the book? Um, do go to my website. Um, my p publisher has helped me to redesign the website so it's fun and colorful now, nancypiercy.com. And that way you can take a look at my other books as well if you're interested. But the book is certainly available at all the normal places that you like to shop, whether it's Amazon or ChristianBook.com, or hopefully you still have a brick and mortar store nearby. Um, so it, it's pretty much available everywhere. Okay, amazing. Well, thank you so much for this awesome conversation. I appreciate it. I really encourage people not just to get this book, but Love Thy Body, as I referenced so many times, total truth. I just appreciate so much the insight the apologetics, the history, the research that you bring to the table. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Well, thanks for having me. It's always good to talk with you. 